Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at this book that we're going to start tonight. We ask you to guide and lead and show us what you would want us to know from this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to start Second Chronicles tonight. Uh, it is the sequel to First Chronicles, obviously. <laughs> in the Hebrew Bible, there are one book, and both of the Chronicles are supplements to the First and Second Kings. The date of this is believed to have been written shortly after the captivity, after captivity when they came back to um, Jerusalem. Uh, we don't know who the author is, though most people ascribe it to Ezra, the Ezra that led the rebuilding of Israel, uh, Jerusalem. Um, it is mostly his, the history of the kings of Judah. We won't, we won't be going off into the kings of the northern kingdom, and we'll be looking at the kings of Judah. And basically out of this, we're going to have all the kings, but we're going to be looking mostly at the five good kings, their, their reforms, and the, revive, and the repentance that came through that. That would be King Asa in chapter 15, Jehoshaphat in chapter 17, Joash in chapter 23, Hezekiah in chapter 29, and Josiah in chapter 34. So those are the five good kings of Judah. And each one of them led to a revival in the land that God blessed them and, and brought back the nation to some strength. It starts out with the reign of Solomon for the first nine chapters. Then we have Rehoboam's bad decisions that, that split the kingdom in chapter 10. And then between chapters 11 through 36, we have the history of the rest of the kings of Judah. So we have lots going on in this. Uh, we see the lessons of the powers of prayer, the, the importance of wisdom, the power of praise. Lots of things are shown to us in the book of 2 Chronicles. So that is just a quick overview of 2 Chronicles. And we're going to start at chapter 1, verse 1. And Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and magnified him exceedingly. Then Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of the thousands and hundreds, and to the judges, and to every governor of Israel, and to the chief of the fathers, so Solomon and all the congregation with him went to the high place that was in Gibeon, for there, was, for there was the tabernacle of the congregation of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But the ark of God had David brought up to Kirjah-Jerarim, to the place which David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Moreover, the brazen altar that Bazael, the son of Uri, the son of Hur had made and put before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the congregation sought unto it. And Solomon went there to the brazen altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of the congregation, and offered a thousand burnt offerings upon it. All right, so we're going to stop there. We start out that Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord, his God, was with him and magnified him exceedingly. Just a couple points I want to bring out. First, that Solomon was strengthened. You know, that was made, made strong. He, he made the kingdom his. He got it organized under his. But the thing I want to really look at it, 
and the Lord his God was with him. This is the first reference we have to Solomon making a claim of God being his God. Up until this point, God has been the God of his father. And this is very important for us. There must be a time, especially for people who grow up in a church, that they come to the conclusion that God is their own God, not, not the God of their mom and dad, not the God of grandpa and grandma, uh, aunt, uncle, whoever, but my God. And here we see this statement that says that God is the God of Solomon. And this is an important step, and it's something that we might totally miss if we weren't thinking about it. But Solomon is shifting from it being the God of his father to my God, and he's going to be seeking everything about it for himself, not just because of this. And it says, and God magnified him exceedingly. And this is the idea of he grew more and more powerful. So David gave Solomon a very strong kingdom. This kingdom went from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, down to the Nile River, and down to the deserts that in the south of the wilderness of Sin, and to the east, off into the wilderness, off that direction. And he owned everything that God promised Solomon that the kingdom of Israel would have. And this is when God promised Abraham that everywhere your foot touched will belong to you. Now they have it. David, during David's time and Solomon's time, they have all of their land. And we see this. And then it says that basically in verse 2, I'm not going to read the whole thing again. David, uh, Solomon calls, up, calls all the leaders and all the people together for a big, big meeting. <laughs> all right. And, and then in, I think this is so interesting. So Solomon in verse 3, and all the congregation with him went to the high place that was in Gibeon, for there was the tabernacle of the congregation of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, made in the wilderness. So here we have a very interesting situation. When David moved the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, he did not bring the tabernacle. He did not bring the altars and the, and the brazen sea and the menorah and everything. He just brought the Ark of the Covenant. No, he didn't even bring the altar. The altar is still out there in Gibeon. Everything except for the Ark was, was left in Gibeon with the tabernacle. And it says here that David had made a special tent for the, uh, for the Ark of the Covenant. So it's not even sitting where it belongs because David has done something different. You know, he's kind of, in many ways, David oftentimes did what he thought best and maybe God told him to, I don't know. But right now you have two places of where worship can happen. You have the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem and you got to worship and sacrifice in Gibeon, which is outside of Jerusalem. And so Solomon and the people, instead of going to the, Ark of the Covenant, which appears that David, David only cared about the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, Solomon is going to go out and worship God by sacrifice. And David apparently did not do that you know, with it. You know, I'm sure he went out and made his sacrifices at times, but there's no reference to David going to Gibeon. He just brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and I believe that he had this idea that the Ark of the Covenant was where God sat, and by bringing it into Jerusalem, God was, God's presence was, in, presence was in Jerusalem. 
And, you know, he almost looked at it the way many of the Jews do even to this day, that the Ark of the Covenant is a kind of a talisman. It, you know, if we have the Ark, we have God. You know, and this is something that can get very interesting. People raise items up to be worshipped so often. The brazen serpent in the wilderness, if you remember the story in Numbers, the serpents came in and they bit people and people were dying. And God told Moses to put a bronze serpent up on a pole and if people just looked at that serpent, they would be healed. Well, later on in this book, we're going to find out that the people had started worshiping the bronze serpent instead of the God who gave that power to it. And basically, I think David's done the same thing with the Ark of the Covenant. He's raised it up to, this is what's important. If you remember in Eli's day, before Samuel became, became judge, the Philistines were attacking the Israelite people. So Eli's sons took the Ark of the Covenant into battle and saying, with God is present with us in the Ark of the Covenant, we cannot lose a battle. And they very quickly lost the battle because God wasn't on their side because they weren't on his side. And then the Ark of the Covenant, you remember the story, it ends up going to seven, you know, four, you know, several cities in, in the Philistia, and everywhere it goes, people get sick and die, and so they send it back to Israel. I believe that a lot of things were taken, you know, that, that people do not see because they knew God knew that they would worship. Uh, Moses' body was taken by God. Why? Because if they had, put, if they had built a, a shrine to Moses, I believe there would have been pilgrimages to Moses all the time because he was the great prophet, so they, God did not let that happen. Uh, you know, why did Jesus not write anything personally? Oh, can you imagine if you had a book that Jesus had written? They'd be worshiping that book. Everybody would want to get to that book. So I believe that he purposely did not write anything that was scripture because, you know, we already have a problem, you know, and one of the statements I hate when people say is, it's in red, so it's got to be believed. Well, anything in my Bible is absolutely true and absolutely right. And just because Jesus said it directly does not make it more special than anything else that was written in, in, by inspiration by the Holy Spirit and put into the Bible. So we need to be very careful about, about that kind of stuff. So why did they do it in red? Because Jesus said it and they want to, they want to emphasize it. The reason I dislike it is why they did it. This is what Jesus said. Somehow that is more important than anything else in the Bible. And, but God is already the one that in, you know, authored the whole Bible, so it really doesn't matter. So I would almost prefer that we didn't have red letter editions, Bibles, but at least understand that just because Jesus spoke it does not make it more gospel, more true than the rest of the Bible. Uh, but this is something I see and I hear a lot. You know, you, you hear it in Christianity a lot. It's written in red, so you gotta, you've got to really pay attention to it. Well, anything written in the Bible should have the same emphasis to it. Uh, and that's a little rampage that I have my dislike of red letter Bibles uh, but you know all these things that come up you know to, to say this is something special and we worship the thing part of it is because we're human we want to see something 
lot of the atheists and a lot of people that don't believe in God, how can you Christians worship a God that you can't see? How, you know, well, you know what? I see him at work all the time around me. So, and I know that he's indwelling in me. I literally see and feel God's presence all around me. So I don't need to be seeing something and bowing down before it to, to worship because it, those aren't real. Uh, so many times in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it says, why are you bowing down before idols that have mouths and cannot speak, who have, who have ears and cannot hear, and, and you know, hands that cannot touch? You know, they're, they're false. You know, you've made them. How can you be worshiping them? I think that's the one that's funny part in that one part of the Bible where they were making idols out of wood, but they make the rest of wood and they burn it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, okay, I mean, with half of it, you make an idol to worship, and yeah, with half, you cook your, cook your food. So, yeah, that goes on all the time. And, you know, but humans like this thing of being able to see something to worship. And so now they're going out to go to the tabernacle where the worship is supposed to happen. And, and in verse 4, is just a little side note, but... The ark of God had David brought from Kirjararim to the place which David had prepared for it, and he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what kind of tent David pitched. I don't know if it had special veils in front of it so that you would not see the ark of the covenant because nobody's supposed to touch it. Uh, they're not even supposed to go near it. Because if you remember, even when they crossed the river Jordan to enter into the promised land, they had to stay thousands of, you know, thousands of feet apart from, away from it as they crossed the river. So, and David has just put it into a tent. And we don't know if this room had, had doors in it or walls in it. We don't know what it is because there's no description of it. But the Ark of the Covenant is not where it belongs at this point in time. Now, David was doing things his own way. He was honoring God the best he understood. But he was doing things wrong yet God blessed David and this is something God will wink sometimes when people do things the wrong the wrong way with the right heart but he does want us to grow and understand to do things the right way so verse 5 says moreover the brazen altar that Bezael the son of Uri the son of Ur had made and put before the tabernacle of the Lord and Solomon and the congregation sought it so they were going to where the altar was, where they could place sin offerings, burnt offerings, the place where you went to give the offering. Now, with the way David had things set up, I do not know how they handled Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Because they had to kill the, kill the animal by the brazen altar, and then they had to deliver the blood to the, to the, to the uh, mercy seat. And David had put the mercy seat inside Jerusalem, and, and the altar is outside Gibeon. So I don't know how they worshipped God, how they were properly worshipping God, how the priest even let David do what he had done. Because obviously the ark should have stayed with the tabernacle or the tabernacle should have stayed with the ark of the covenant one way or the other. Well, the mercy seat, we had the ark, of the, uh, the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat was the cover to the ark of the covenant. And then they had the cherubim that's wings touched on, on that covered, that had the shadowed the. The mercy seat was a lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was a box. So you had the the box of the Ark of the Covenant, which had the uh, 
Ten Commandments in it, the pot of manna in it, and the rod of Aaron in it. Then you had the mercy seat, which covered that, which basically made a throne for God to sit on. Then you had the two cherubim, one on each side, with their wings stretched out over the mercy seat that overshadowed the mercy seat. You talk about Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that was kind of not really a good picture of the ark, but no, it was, I thought, yeah. I thought was accurate, but that was not was the basic idea was. Uh, they sensationalized it a lot. But here Solomon goes down with the people, all the leaders, to go and worship God through the sacrificial system. And so and it says, he went up there to the brazen altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of the congregation, and he offered a thousand burnt offerings upon it. This is a lot of animals. Now, it could have been as small as sheep and goats, but I have a feeling Solomon is rich. These probably weren't sheep and goats. They probably were bullocks that they killed off. But even, even a thousand sheep and goats is a lot of sheep and goats to be killing off at the tabernacle and draining their blood out on the ground, skinning them, and then burning them. It would have taken a, quite a while. Even if they had all the priests and everything in there, there's going to take a long time to burn that much, that much sacrifice upon the brazen altar, which was very large. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a small barbecue. It was a huge, huge item, but still you're putting a thousand sacrifices of burnt offerings on that altar. It probably took the entire day at least to burn all of these offerings. You kind of think that Solomon's trying to make a point to God, <laughs> point to God, God, I love you, I want to honor you. Because each burnt sacrifice was a symbol of full dedication to God. So Solomon, a thousand times, is saying, I'm fully dedicated to you, God. Was there ever a time that God was not with Solomon? Later on, he's great. He came back to God, so I would say there was a time when he was not close to God. Because he had made bad decisions. And this is the problem. When you are the child of God, and you're living in sin... You are not close to God by your choice by living in the sins that you're living in and not in the dedication to him. And then he's just waiting for you to come back like the prodigal son, the father of the prodigal son saying, welcome home. Even though you were gone and away, he stayed where he was at waiting for you to come back. So prodigal son stuff is like a picture of... A picture of falling away for the Christian and then coming back. Yeah, because God is right there waiting for us to come back. And he, because we're saved by grace, it doesn't matter what we're doing, he's still waiting for us to come back, and he welcomes us home with open arms and a feast. <laughs> We've repented and come back. So where does the, the other brother fit in on? The older brother, on the other hand, was a self-righteous one who, did, who obeyed God, who obeys God just out of works and obligation and has no joy in his service. So they're, they're the two, both of them are the two extremes of worship. The prodigal who falls away completely and does his own thing, but was, got, was the son and gets welcomed back. And the self-righteous one who obviously is a son because God calls him the son, 
but is serving him out of just pure obligation. And there's no joy in, in serving God with obligation. So they're the extremes. Now, there's no third one. There's no third one that served God with joy and peace and, and stayed. Well, you can be the third, the third one, but there's no third one in the story. The third one is the person who serves God with, with joy, and I'm just happy to serve God. This older, the older brother represents the one, because his, his statement was, you know, I have served you all these years, and you have never thrown a party for me. And you see all three types of people in the church. You see those who are off doing their own thing, not really serving God. You see the self-righteous, you know, I'm in church all the time, and I'm doing this, and I'm part of this, and I'm part of this, and they're sourer than anything because they're not happy about serving God. They're just feeling, I've got to do things to please God. And then you have those that are, God, I just can't, what can I do to serve you? I just want to serve you. I don't want to go off into the world and do my thing again. I don't want to be obligated. And this is the thing that people have to understand. And there's a fine line between, between the two. Most people make the mistake of being the older brother. Many more people are the older brother in church than, than the prodigal. Now, there's a lot of people who are prodigals, but there's a lot of people that are the older brother. I am just serving God because I have to go to church. I have to go to church on Sunday. I have to go Sunday night. I have to go Wednesday night. I have to read my Bible. I have to pray. You know, once in a while, I have to share the gospel with people just because I've been told I have to. But there's no joy in it. And in, in certain areas of our life, we're all the older brother in certain areas of our life where we're just obeying God because that's what we think we're supposed to do rather than doing it out of joy. And I'm happy to do this. You know, and this is, this is what I say all the time. You know, the laws are there, and if we violate God's laws, there's consequences. But why should we keep the law? Because we're saved by grace, and we're not making God happier. By it. We, we obey the law to please God and reap the benefits of pleasing him. You know, the older brother keeps the laws to avoid the consequences of the disobedience. And then it's all, and that's where you get, well, you know, God's got nothing but a bunch of rules, and I've got to follow all these rules to make him happy, and I'm not happy following all these rules. And what you're saying, I'd rather be the prodigal, I'd rather be out there being the prodigal, but I can't because God said not to, and I don't want the, the discipline of, and the consequences of being the prodigal. And like I say, the, there isn't a third stone in the story, but technically there really is a third slot that we need to be in. I'm serving God because... I want to serve him and just to show him I love him and just to show him that I am pleased that I'm his child and now I get to go out and live that way. And most people don't think about the prodigal son because they think of the older, the older brother as being the good one. He really wasn't. Because what was he in, inadvertently saying? You know, he wasted all of his money, you know, all of your money, and I stayed at home. Probably bitterness in his heart saying, I really wish I could have been my brother out there living living that way, but I want to keep all the rules, I want to keep all the rules so that I, you know, so that you will like me more. <laughs> and he never understood the heart of the father. And so, didn't mean to get off from the prodigal son, but that's okay. All right, verse 7. That night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, what, ask what you shall, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said unto him, you have showed great mercy unto David, my father, and have made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let your promise unto David, my father, be established, for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. 
Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this people that is so great? I'm going to stop there. Kind of, a, this is a beautiful picture. Solomon has just offered a thousand burnt offerings. And that night, while he's sleeping, God comes to him and appears to Solomon. Probably in a dream. I don't believe that Solomon was awakened and, and, and brought into this. But he, and he's asked, ask me for anything you want, Solomon. Can you just picture that from God? Ask me for what you would like me to give you. And Solomon you know, says, hey, you, know, you, you were very kind to my father. You, you've allowed me to reign. Uh, help make this promise unto David, my father, and establish it forever, that my kingdom, because I am ruling a very large kingdom. He says, you've given me a kingdom and the people of the, and, and that, are, that are like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now, I don't know if it was really like the dust of earth. So they only had a, you know, about a million and a half people or so, 300 million people, or 3 million people. But Solomon goes, I got a lot of people. <laughs> I can't be, I can't rule them without your, without your grace. And then he says, give me now wisdom. You know, and this is an interesting statement, wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to discern to perceive, to consider. I want to read you a definition from the Old Testament uh, Hebrew portion. Wisdom is the teachings of the personal God who is holy and just and expects those who know him to exhibit his character and counsel in practical affairs of life. True wisdom is, number one, get to know God. Number two, apply what you know about God into your daily life. Be changed. And this is the beauty of it. The real God that influences and changes people is who we're to know, and he changes us. And we've said this so many times. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out so that as we get to know God we be, and his character, we get to start acting out his character. And here, this is what Solomon's asking for. Give me wisdom and knowledge. Let me understand you, God, and start acting out like you. And then he gets and says, give me knowledge. Uh, and, and why did he say this? He says, that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this people that is so great? Because God, I need to know you. I need to be like you so that I can judge the people correctly. I love this. I love this prayer. This should be all of our prayer to say, God, give me wisdom. Help me to get to know you so that I can become more like you and demonstrate you to other people. This is what draws people to Christ. When they see true Christians walking in the wisdom of God, they will be attracted to God. And we find out in the Psalms, the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
over and over it says the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because if we fear him, we're getting to know him and then we begin to act like him in our process and that is what wisdom is all about. And this is Solomon's prayer. I just want wisdom. I want to know you, God, so well that I can apply your character to rule my people. This is a beautiful prayer. And it has to be meant. You can't, you know, I've heard people trying to say Solomon's prayer to God, you know, when they don't mean it. What they want is all the other stuff that God did give Solomon. (laughs) And God's answer to Solomon in verse 11. And God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for riches, wealth, or honor, nor for the life of your enemies, nor yet have you asked for long life, but you have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have ever had that have been before you, neither shall there be any after you have like. Then Solomon came from his journey to the high place that was in Gibeon to Jerusalem and before the tabernacle of the congregation and reigned over Israel. So God loved Solomon's request. He goes, Solomon, you could have asked for so many things. You you could have asked to be rich. You could have asked for peace. You could have asked for the heads of your enemies. You could have asked for all of these things. And he goes, but... You asked for wisdom and knowledge. And then verse 12, wisdom and knowledge is granted unto you. Now, this is actually any child of God has the ability to get wisdom and knowledge if they focus on God and let him change them. Let him crucify the flesh and let his spirit indwell us in such a way that we change And now we get to display God through our actions. And then he says, and by the way, I'm going to give you riches, wealth, honor, such as no king before you has had. Solomon got to be the most famous of all the kings of Israel and probably all the kings of all the world. So when you ask ask for wisdom, a lot of all the stuff came to him because he Probably it came because he had wisdom. He made the wise decisions, but he knew God. And he made things, he made decisions based on God's character. Uh, when Jesus said it this way, he said that you shall ask what you will in my name and it shall be granted unto you. The more we get to know God and his character, the more we will ask for things in his name and then we will get all of our heart's desires because our heart's desires are matching God's. Because most people read that verse and go, well, all I got to do is ask in Jesus' name and I can get what God, I uh, I want a Lamborghini in Jesus' name. I want a 50-bedroom 50, 50 house in Jesus' name. None of that is in Jesus' name. You're maybe tacking his name on there, but the name is all of his reputation and character. So when I get to know him, and the better I get to know him, then my prayers become things that were within his character, and he says, oh, yes, you want it for the right reasons. Here is all the rest. This was Solomon's prayer. What was his prayer? Give me wisdom and knowledge so that I can rule your people. You know, and this is where it's important. Why do we want it? Why do we, you know, why do we need some big, big amount of money? Well, if God has put it on our heart to do a big mission and, and you know, some kind of mission activity and it takes a lot of money to do it, 
God, we really believe that you want us to do this. We need the money to do this. I'm not looking to build a great big house to my, myself or get a nice car for myself, but God, we need this for your work. And then I'm praying in Jesus' name. And this is what he did it. So, yes, there's a combination. God promised it to him, but he also would have made better decisions because he was walking in the wisdom of God. And he's going to suffer because he doesn't walk in the wisdom of God all the time. He, God made him wise, but he doesn't walk in the wisdom of God for his entire reign. And he's going to suffer problems because of not walking in, in wisdom. Uh, and after all this, after he had that promise, he says, Solomon went back to Jerusalem and reigned over Israel. At this time, it's one nation. Southern and, and northern kingdom are one. And Solomon is going to reign over all of it. Okay, verse 14. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, which he placed in the chariot cities which were with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold at Jerusalem as plenteous as stones, and cedar trees as he made he as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn, and the king's merchants received the linen yard, yarn at a price. And they fetched up and brought forth out of Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver, a horse for 150 shekels. And so brought they out horses for all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Assyria, of Syria by their means. All right. So now we're beginning to see the beginnings of the glory of Solomon. So it says, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen and had 1,400 chariots. That's a lot of chariots. Even for that day, that's a lot of chariots. 12,000 horsemen, and he placed them all in the cities there in Jerusalem. Now, I want to take just a moment to show you that Solomon is doing what God said not to do. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 17 and 14. We're going to start at 14 just to get the context of this section. So, yeah, Deuteronomy 17, starting at chapter, uh, verse 14. And this is Moses telling the people before they've even entered into the promised land. When you are coming to the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall possess it and you shall dwell therein, and you shall say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are about me. What did they do to Saul, uh, Samuel when they asked for a king and he, they got Saul? Give us a king like all the other nations. God had already told them that they were going to do that. And verse 5 says, And you shall make, you shall in any wise set him king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brethren shall you set a king over you. You shall not set a stranger over you, which is not your brother, so it has to be somebody from the tribe of, of Israel. But he shall not multiply horses unto himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. To, to that end, he should multiply horses, Horses, for as much as the Lord has said, you shall henceforth return no more that way. So in other words, they weren't supposed to go to Egypt to get horses. Egypt had the finest horses, 
And God says, I don't want you people going back to Egypt. Egypt, remember, Egypt is also a, a picture of going back to the world. Many Christians go back to the world. They go, I want to do things the world's way because that way I can make money. I can get whatever it is that I want to get. In this case, it was talking about horses. Then he says in verse 17, Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn away, turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply unto himself silver and gold. Um, the rest of it it says that he's going to write a copy of the Bible. So let's look at this uh, here. You shall not multiply horses unto yourself. Well, he added just a few few horses. (laughs) 12,000 horsemen, uh, 1,400 chariots. He had just a few horses. Uh, You shall not return to Egypt. Where are they going to get these horses according to that verse? They're going to Egypt. And they're also buying fine yarn and linen. Some of the best linen comes from Egypt even to this day. And so they were going to get the the riches of Egypt and brought it back to Israel. And even though God said, don't return to Israel, uh, Egypt rather. And he says, don't multiply wives unto yourself. Well, Solomon was really good about this. He he only had 1,000 wives and concubines. So I don't know, was that multiplying wives? Probably (laughs) So he violated that one. And it says, Neither shall you greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. He's made silver and gold so plentiful, it's like the rocks of of Jerusalem. Solomon, for all of his prayer to be wise and know God, disobeys every step that God says the king should not do. And then we wonder, why did he fall away? He didn't obey God from the beginning. He had so many wives that those basically were told later on that his wife said, would you please build us a temple? I have no place to temple. You know, please build me a temple to my God. Instead of telling them to worship the God, Solomon went out and built temples for his wives to every God that, they, that was represented in his harem. And when it, later on when we read the high places they destroyed not, All those high places were the temples that Solomon built for all the false gods of his wives. So he disobeyed God even even when he had asked and prayed God, prayed and asked God for wisdom, which means to know God and follow him. And yet by God's grace and mercy, he let Solomon continue to reign. This is the beautiful thing that we see. David, an adulterer, a murderer, a terrible father, and yet God gave him grace to let him reign the whole time you know, in, in his kingdom. Over and over we see God's mercy and grace. Moses, with his terrible temple, uh, temper, was given the opportunity by God's grace and mercy to reign over the people for 40 years. You know, we see somebody like Samson, uh, Samson broke every rule that was, he was supposed to keep, and yet God used him mightily to defeat the enemy. You know, so it is wonderful to look at this, and this is something we have to remember. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, God saves us. And when we start getting into this idea that what do I do to please God It's simple. Let him live inside you and crucify your flesh. 
What does that mean? He does all the work. This is the beauty of Christianity. God does the work. All I do is surrender to him and watch what he does. And this is the glory and beauty that we have as he changes us. He makes us more and more righteous, more and more perfect because of the inside out. And all we have to do is seek the wisdom, get to know him and follow him from that. So here we are. He has 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses. These are in Jerusalem right where he's at. What was the problem with this mostly? Is that he had a military force that he could put his trust in so they didn't have to trust in God. And this is part of the problem that the United States has had. We've gotten so, so far away from God. In our early days of our country, we had to trust on God for victory. Now we have a military army that we look, we can deal, we can deal with anybody. We don't have to trust in God. Basically, this is what Solomon was building. You want to come against me? I'm going to come at you with 1,400 chariots and 12,000 cavalry. And that doesn't even count the foot soldiers. I have more army, I have more army than you do just with my horses. And so he's saying this. And then it said in verse 15, and the, and the king made silver and gold at Jerusalem as plenteous as the stones. Now, this is quite a bit of wealth. Because if you know you see the pictures, if you see the pictures of Jerusalem, it is nothing but rocks. And here they're saying in Solomon's day, it was so much gold and silver, you, it was just you could pick it up anywhere. It was just like going outside and picking up rocks. It was that plentiful. Now that's a lot of gold and silver. With that means that there was a lot of inflation. You know, the thing that people counted as money was worthless. So what do you spend? What do you spend? What becomes valuable? And this is something that is going to be seen as we go down in here. And then he also said that the sycamore trees he made as, uh, the cedar trees he made as the sycamore. Sycamore is that lightweight wood, it's cheap. Cedar is the expensive wood, came from the Lebanon. He said he put so much of it out there that nobody basically wanted to use cheap wood, all right? Uh, they wanted to use the expensive wood because there was too much of it. It was easy. It wasn't all that expensive because there was so much of it. And it says, And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price. So here he says he's bringing horses out of Egypt. He's bringing the linen out of Egypt. And the merchants are buying from him for the linen yarn and even the horses, and then they resell it. And if you know anything about business, when you buy something from somebody other than the main distributor, there's a markup. You know, Solomon was not buying, was not a fool. He did not buy it and give it to them at a discounted price. You know, he marked it up. You know, he may have had a discounted price, you know, lower than they might have been able to, but he marked it up and made money off of buying the yarn for them to sell to the people. So here we have all of this going on. They're going back to Egypt, going back to the world that God said, do not go back to. And this is something for us as Christians. We need to be very careful to not go back into the ways of the world. And I've seen this. I've seen Christian salesmen who decide that they can't tell the truth because you can't make a, you can't make a sale by telling the truth, even though God says to tell the truth. And God says, I will bless those that are honest. 
and yet they are so fearful because everybody in the business world on sales tends to lie, so they're going, I've got to lie to make a, make a living. You know, and God is saying, what happened to my word? You know, we need to be very careful to not do things the world's way and to say, God, I want to honor you in all that I do. And it is easy to go the way of the world because it sounds so wise. God says to give a tithe and people go, well, God, I can't afford to live on 100% and you want me to live on 90%? And God says, just honor me and see if I will return back to you. God says to love our enemies. That goes really against the grain because we want to destroy our enemies if we had an opportunity. And God says, love them, do good to them, be kind to them. You know, Matter of fact, in, in, even in the Old Testament, he says, if you find your enemy's donkey wandering the street, take it back to him. You know, so this isn't something new in the New Testament. It is the way God has always acted and thought. He says, be kind to your enemies. And then it says in verse 17, and they fetched up and brought forth out of Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver. That is approximately $400 in today's in money. That's pretty expensive. So what did I say? He made gold and silver so plentiful, inflation was driven up. And when he dies, we're going to have the people coming to his son and saying, would you please cut our taxes because you are taxing us. And it was said that Solomon had, had a very high tax rate. For all the benefit that they had, he had a very high tax rate. And Rehoboam is going to tell him, you know, go fly a kite. You think my dad's taxes were high? You know, just wait till you see how my taxes are going to be. And ten tribes left him because of it. And they would buy a horse for 150 shekels or about $100. By today's prices, that's a pretty cheap horse. But in that day, that would have been quite a bit of money for, for a horse. All right. Uh, so here it's showing that he's spending a lot of money for all of these things. He is buying chariots. He's buying horses. And then in the last part of this is kind of an interesting statement. And so brought or delivered he, they out horses for all the kings of the Hittites and all the kings of Syria by their means, which means if they could afford it, they sold it to him. He's got so many chariots that he's selling it to anybody else who wants to buy you want a chariot? Here it is. I've got it for you. Solomon's, Solomon's uh, chariot uh, dealership. <laughs> you know, I've got chariots. I've got horses. Do you, do you have enough money to buy them? I've got them for you. Uh, and this is, we see here Solomon going the way of the world in this aspect. He's disobeying God in mounting up horses, mounting up wives, mounting up gold and silver. And now not only is doing that, he is now going to Egypt, buying the stuff, and then reselling it to all the other kings in the area if they had enough money to buy it. Now, so he is going the way of the world. And this is why it's very interesting to look at Solomon and the way God blesses Solomon in spite of all that he does wrong. Right here in this verse, he has violated every aspect of Deuteronomy 17 where God said kings were not supposed to do. Later on, he's going to build temples to, for his wives, which means that he is placing other gods before his God because eventually he does worship in their temples. This is very important that we understand 
And Solomon is a great picture of do not be unequally yoked because when you're unequally yoked, you will be drawn into the sins of the person who's not a godly person. And we see it over and over in, in, in the world. When a Christian marries a non-Christian or goes into business with a non-Christian, they usually do things the way of the world, not the way of God. Every once in a while, the, it'll work out, but not usually. And this is something that is a big problem. Solomon marries all these people that are not even Jews, they're not worshiping God, and it's gonna, they're going to drag him away. He's gone into business with the world. Hey, Egypt, I've got the funds and everything. I can, I can bring this stuff up to, my, up to my city, and I'll sell it from here. So, and you know, if he was buying them for $100 and $400 and he had to ship them all the way to Jerusalem before he sent them out, he was a good businessman. He marked them up. So they paid more than he paid. You know, he's going to make sure that somebody pays for that man who went there and, and picked the stuff up and came back or the men that came, went there and picked it up. Uh, you know, he's going he's gonna to add the shipping charge to the, <laughs> to the horses so they're paying more than he paid. And yet, it says that he supplied the Hittites and the Syrians. Now, why is this really an important thing? Because later on, the Hittites are going to be an enemy of Israel, and so are the Syrians, and he's the one that supplied them with horses and chariots in the first place. So they could use them against Israel later on. And this is the problem when we deal with the world under the world's terms, eventually the world turns on us and takes advantage of us, even though we were nice to them and we were kind to them and we did all that stuff for them, eventually they turn against God's people. And here Solomon is setting up a future for his people where the enemy is going to be equipped with the weapons that he gave them to use against his own people, which of course he's not king by then, but they're going to be the enemies of Israel and Solomon supplied the weapons for them to use against him. Sad position. And we see, even in this first chapter, where it's all this good, he, he prays for wisdom, yet he doesn't obey God, and he sets up problems for the future. And this is about the only time we're going to see this, this process going on, but this is a very deep understanding. We need to pray for wisdom and then act wisely and not follow the ways of the world. Do what God tells us to do, not out of obligation, but just out of joy that God has a good plan for us. And this is the good news. Why do I, why do I obey? Part of it is to avoid bad consequences, but part of it is to get the good consequence. If I obey God, he's promised blessings. His promised good things will happen. And so when I obey him, there's ultimate good for me. Even if I get into tribulation and, and good martyred, there's still good when I enter into heaven. There's the blessings of heaven. There's the long-term good about being obedient. And we not, we're not good trying to make God bless us. We're not being good to, to, to manipulate God. And I've had people, you know, we talk about this, you know, we're to love others so they'll come to God. You know, and, and, do, and they'll be nice to us. Well, then I'm just going to love everybody so that they'll love me. Wrong, not the right motive. Anytime we're doing it for the wrong motive, there'll be consequences to it because people will see through the wrong motive. 
I love people just because God loves them. Now, if they love me, that's great. If they don't love me, that's great. If I, if I honor God and I do good, I'm not doing it just to get good. Job is a great picture of that. Job was a man that God said is righteous and pure and hates evil. And what happened to him? He lost everything, including his health for a period of time. But God honored his faithfulness and then blessed him again. God will do this, but just because we're doing the right thing does not mean that our life is going to be a bowl of cherries and the sun shines all the time and there won't be any massive rains or anything. Storms will come into our lives. Troubles will come into our life. But God is at our side. And we're looking at it through the prism of God and the protection of God. And looking at it, and I'm content with whatever falls my way just because God says, I've got a home in heaven. You know, if nothing else, that should be enough to keep us focused on God. God, I am looking forward to my home in heaven when I get to go home and I get to just finally rest. You know, I have a nice, easy life, but, you know, there's a lot of work involved in this life. But heaven is going to be a perfect place for a perfect rest and a perfect time for us. And looking forward to it. Solomon asked for the right thing, but did not live by wisdom at least early on. Now, God gave him knowledge, too. He had lots of knowledge, and people are going to come to him for his knowledge. But Solomon's wisdom was not all that great most of the time. Now, he used it. We're going to see examples of his use, use of wisdom. But he didn't live all the time by wisdom and discernment because he made so many problems that didn't follow God's way of walking. Lord, we ask you to be with us. Teach us to walk in wisdom, Lord. Help us to be wise, get to know you in all that we do, and then to live out your life and your knowledge in all that we do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life.
and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.